Father, I, again, so many times I thank you for Paul and all that he did and how faithful he was. He had that reckless abandonment. I pray that we could exude that as well in our attitude and in our actions. I would pray that you would help us to be like him, to be a witness for you. No matter what the consequences might be, as long as we're speaking truth, Lord, I know that we can be confident that you are guiding and directing. So help us as we go through this story with Paul and his witness to the people in Jerusalem. Help us to understand what we might do as a result of his testimony. As he said, we should follow him as he follows you. Help us in that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul starts out. He gives his testimony. Now there's four things. I'm going to give you four words that are here that will help you break down what is going with this witness time that he has before the people. Remember, in the story, the centurion or the commander, he took Paul and Paul started speaking to him. Paul would speak Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And he started speaking to the commander there. And the commander talked to him in in Roman citizen, that type of thing. And he carried on a conversation. He goes, give me a chance to speak to the people. So he set him in front of the people up in the Praetorian Guard area. Uh, That's at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount area. And everybody quieted down. They wanted to hear him. Now he has thousands of people in front of him. Now if you were faced with that, what would you say? Say you had a hundred people that you had a captive audience with and they're all looking at you. What would you say? Now I don't think most of us have to worry about that. I might, but I, I don't know about you guys. But there's going to be one or five that you might have the opportunity to do that. What would be the first thing you do? You'd pray. Before you even opened up your mouth, you'd say, Lord, help me, is what you would say. And then he would give you the words to speak as promised in his word. He, he says he will give you those very words when you're before people. Well, he had ancestry. He had acumen, A-C-U-M-E-N. He was ardent, A-R-D-E-N-T, and he was affected. Those four A's. He had four A's here, and I'll explain what these are. To have ancestry, you have a pedigree. You come from some place. You, you come from a lineage of people. And, of course, he was pure Jew. There was no doubt about who he was. And the people in Jerusalem knew who he was. He was close enough to the leaders of the Jews that he was able to get letters to go out and from the uh, high priest to go out and persecute the Christians. He had acumen or intelligence or wisdom. You could say that he was, had a pedigree, a PhD. He was passionate, those types of things. That's the next one, being ardent. Ardent is being passionate where you were really sold out to something. Have you ever seen college football? College football is way more ardent than professional football. If you get the the college teams in there, they're jumping up and down, hooping and hollering, and the pros are like, yo, okay, let's go, and that's it. But the college team, they're all over the place. And you look at the stands, they're going nuts. They paint their faces, take their shirts off, red and white and different colors all over their chest. They are sold out. Paul was sold out. He was very passionate. If we have that same passion going out, we'll have people listen to us. Everyone wants to listen to somebody who is passionate about what they believe, whatever the subject might be. Secular people as well as religious people. When they speak, if they're passionate, you go, wow, those are interesting. I may not agree, but that's interesting what they have to say. And of course, he was affected on the road to Damascus. Now, on this road to Damascus, I'm going to show these pictures a little early. Uh, Daryl, if you could show the first one there. Now, this is when we go to Israel... This is the northern border of Israel at the Golan Heights. Now, in November, there could be a little snow on the ground, maybe an inch or two if it's cold. Probably not. It'll be a little chilly up there. And this is looking towards Damascus. Now, if you walked in a straight line from this point to Damascus, and as you're looking at the picture, if you put your arm straight where that dugout is, and that's a, a military dugout where a guy could be there with a rifle and he could hide behind. 
because towards the north, you know, you have Syria and Lebanon going up in that way, and this is where they protect Israel. This is the farthest point north. And if you took your army and you pointed straight, and if you were standing in that, and just go slightly to your right, 55 miles to the north is Damascus. And this is where Paul walked. And you're going to be able to see that when we go to Israel. This is the place you, you could have looked over this direction and Paul would have been there. Now, do you have the other picture of Mount Hermon there? Is that the one? Uh, no, you had another one on there. But if you're standing there, you can also see, there it is, that's Mount Hermon. Now, Damascus is to the right of that. And when you're standing in that same area, you can look off and see Mount Hermon. They have skiing on Mount Hermon. And that's in another country to the north. But Jesus talks, and some people believe that's the mountain that Jesus went to on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, we don't know that for sure. But it's a very high mountain. It's the highest mountain that is there. But you'll see all of that from the Golan Heights. And so this is where Paul was affected, going towards that mountain and to the right, which would take him to Damascus. So he was focused on who he was when he gives this message here and where he was from and that he was a Jew. He was fully knowledgeable and qualified to speak. Uh, zeal was his hallmark and he was transformed by an event in his life. Now, he's giving his personal testimony, and you have a testimony as well. Some people say, you know, I, I don't have a testimony. I've been in church my whole life. I've grown up in it. I was in Sunday school. I didn't go out and start doing a bunch of drugs and get thrown in jail. And, and I'll confess to you, I was thrown in jail once down in Mexico. Uh, it was a grueling time, and I was 17 years old, and that's like part of my testimony you know, is being thrown in jail down there. But you have maybe this testimony that is a clean slate. The worst thing you did was tell a lie to your grandmother or something like that. That's a testimony as well, that God chose to grab you even though your life was not down in the doldrums or the dregs of society. But then maybe you have a testimony that's like, wow, you, you came up from those dregs. And look what the Lord has done with your personal life. And Paul does the same thing. He talks about this. Now, Paul says here at the beginning, brothers and fathers, this is in chapter 22, listen now to my defense. This word defense is apologia, where we get our word apology or apologetics. Apologetics is not going to somebody and say, I'm sorry for what I believe, but apologetics is making a defense for your faith. That's what it is. It's not saying I'm sorry. And he was being respectful here. And the second verse says, when they heard him speak in the Aramaic, they became very quiet. Now, are you always prepared to speak to people? This is the point where they became very quiet and he's going, okay, Lord, give me the words to say. I'm sure he was praying at that point. And for us, First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, I'm sure you're very familiar with it. It says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So we are supposed to be prepared at any given moment. Now, he had ancestry. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. So this told him two things. One, that he was one of them. He was a pure Jew. Both of his parents were Jews. But he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, which was a, what was known as a free Roman city. If you were born in that city, you automatically became a Roman citizen. So he had cred, so to speak. He had street cred. He was a Jew. That's credentials. And he was also a Roman citizen. Now, some of the common benefits of being a Roman citizen, which benefits him here, as we will see, you have the right to vote in an assembly. You also are eligible to run for civic or public office. You have a right to make legal contracts. You can hold property. Uh, you are privileged of immunity. Some have a privilege of immunity from some taxes and legal obligations. You have the right to sue and to be sued in court. You have the right to a legal trial where there could appear, where you could appear before a proper court and defend yourself. And also you had ultimately the ability to appeal to Caesar himself. 
It'd be the equivalent of one of us going to the president and say, I'm appealing to the president, the chief law enforcer of the land. And that's what a Roman citizen had the ability to do. Now, he had also the acumen or the credentials, and they were impeccable. He says, under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers. And he was a well-read, studious man, and he often wanted his books. Back then, they were scrolls, and he even asked Timothy to bring his scrolls to him so he could brush up on the knowledge that he had. That takes place in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. He would have had a bar mitzvah. At 13 years old, he would have been declared a man with the responsibilities of a man. It would have been a ceremony. Uh, it, bar mitzvah means son of a commandment. And he probably moved to Jerusalem at that age and committed to memory large portions of scripture. He, he was very astute in the Old Testament. And going through the school of Gamaliel, he would have been grilled for answers and required to give answers. It's kind of like giving your thesis in college, uh, whether it's a baccalaureate or a PhD, you have to defend your thesis and then you have to be challenged by the professors who are there. They ask you questions and you're supposed to give them an answer so that you know the subject thoroughly and they can understand that you do. And he would have had that type of training that he went through. He was also circumcised of the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. This is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. And as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless, but whatever was to my prophet, he says here in Philippians, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So he, he was a dynamo. He knew the scriptures. He could refute. He was looked to as a leader. Remember when Stephen was being stoned? He was the one standing by the side taking the cloaks. They recognized him as a leader of these other Jews because not only of his position, the Roman citizenship, he knew what he was talking about, and he was very passionate for the Lord. That's the next thing. He was ardent, enthusiastic, or zealous. He says, under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way, and the way would be Christianity. That's what it was called then. To their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify. See, he knew the high priest. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. He was anti-Christian. Now, do you live in a society that is anti-Christian? It's not my parents' country. It's not my parents' society. And I've mentioned this previously when we were growing up, most of us in here, everything was closed on Sunday. Few places open, hospitals, things like that. My dad delivered newspapers on Sunday. It was so thick delivering that thing. But it was a different time. It was a time of respect. We recently flew on a plane, as you know, and I was looking at all the people getting on the plane. And when plane flight began, what did you wear? You wore a suit, a dress. Women had, and that's just the men. And then you, you had, the women had a dress and pumps, you know, that they would wear. And you, you looked good and you smelled good and everything was nice. And they'd bring this cart and they would carve this ham right in front of you and give you sandwiches. And you would have a nice meal, not something in plastic that had been microwaved or anything like that. It was a full-on spread that you would have. I, I can remember when I was young at 19 coming back from Hawaii, we had to dress up to get on the plane. I think it was PSA at that time or Hawaiian Air. I forget which one it was. But, but everybody looked good and behaved themselves on the planes. The time was different. There was this respect that was there. When we grew up, I don't know about you guys, but my father was an ex-Marine. It was yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. We have a picture where um, it, it's at our house. I think it's on a piano in our house that all, there's four boys. All of us had suits on. 
All of us had ties. We went to visit some uh, relatives in Las Vegas. And my parents took us to a dinner show. And we saw the 69 champions of the World Series, the New York Mets. And they were on stage and they had them do this little performance that was up there. And all of us were sitting with our hands in our laps because you didn't put your elbows on the table. And you, you're nice and the brill cream in the hair. And my father, you know, he had the, the real thin black tie and the black suit. My mom with her bouffant hair. And, you know, they come, can we take your picture? And I have that picture. You go now, when we were flying, people are wearing sometimes hardly anything and and they get on the plane and they're cleaning their feet and you know i mean it's just they throw their hair over the back of the chair that's right in front of you they they stick their foot through the arms you know and you're going oh there's a foot there you know And, and it's just different the respect that we used to have it's not here it is gone and so are there things like that with Christianity where there used to be respect of Christianity in this country not so much anymore I was listening to a study and somebody brought up John Fitzgerald Kennedy who was a Catholic and he'd talk about God and even Johnson who I don't think was a very good president he would also talk about God they would talk about God in respectful terms now if you talk about God You are looked down upon like you are not as intelligent and you don't know what you're talking about and you're so backward. But yet it is the truth that is out there. And people don't want to hear the truth and they want to live their own way in life where they're not going to be accountable because if they realize what the truth is, they realize that they're sin, they realize that they're accountable to our maker. And so that's how things have changed. Whether it's the ACLU or George Soros or the government that's coming after Christians and remember during the pandemic the DOJ was keeping track of those people who went to church through their cell phones Uh, they had an active program of doing that and it's not persecution yet but you know that could be in the future And, and so we'll see now going on he was also affected and this is his testimony and verse 6 says About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now he's yelling this out to thousands of people. Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth. That would have perked their ears up right away because Jesus had been crucified years before and all of Jerusalem would have known about it. Whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. And going on with this, some some people would like to say Paul's conversion at this time was not a true conversion. And the secular uh, humanists that are out there saying, well, in this story, he probably just had an epileptic seizure where he saw some light and he was thrown to the ground and they tried to explain it away, just like they tried to explain away things like the, the Red Sea parting. Well, the wind blew, that's true. But if you read the text, it says there's a wall on one side and a wall on the other side where you could have stuck your fist in the wall of the water, but they'd like to say, no, the wind just blew it apart. I've never seen wind blow so hard that it creates a straight wall of water. And it was a miracle, but they tried to speak away these things. Now, I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to do this parenthetical thought. Okay, keep your place. Now, I have really never watched on television or your LED screen, whatever it is, a program about Jesus Christ that was accurate or about anything in the Bible that was accurate. For instance, um, the Ten Commandments. You know who did that? Moses did that, right? And it was Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston was there. And also Ben-Hur. All all the stories that were in there, they were embellished. But they were the classics by Cecil B. DeMille, if you remember those. And I I remember watching them. And then Ben-Hur, he's told by Belteshazzar that there are many ways to God, my son. That's what he said to him. And I thought, no, 
That's heresy. But everybody says, oh, Ben-Hur, it's a wonderful Christian movie. Well, no, there are errors in it. And same thing with the Ten Commandments. There were errors in that as well. And when what was it, Peter Jennings, he would do some uh, stories about the Bible and he would try to speak away the miracles in there. That goes all the way back to what is known as the documentary hypothesis where there are no miracles and everything can be explained through natural means. And it, every time I watched one of those, I would start to talk to the TV. I, I would tell the TV, that's not right. That's not what it says. Well, the reason I'm telling you this is because I was listening to a study, and there's several people that I listened to, and this one guy I really respect, and he had somebody on that talked about the chosen. And I've told you, I think that the chosen is probably the most accurate, even though it is not accurate. They take some liberty, a lot of liberty with what the dialogue is or was during the time of Jesus with his disciples. And Jesus, you know, he had a little sense of humor. And, and Jonathan Rumi, you know, uh, he doesn't look like Jesus looked. I want to tell you that right now, but that's the image that we have in our mind that that's how Jesus looked. Remember, Jesus was an ordinary looking fellow with short hair and a beard. He wasn't Jonathan Rumi who was tall, handsome looking, long hair, and just jovial all the time, or most of the time. Jesus was God, but we wouldn't look at him like we'd look at Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus, and also played Lonnie Frisbee in the story about Chuck Smith and, and uh, Greg Laurie. And so they were talking about this program, and they pretty much denounced it, saying it was terrible. And they went on some ad hominem attacks. And I thought to myself, you know, I've seen some of the effects of this show. Not one show, like I said, that has ever been produced about Jesus Christ has been accurate. And I don't think you can make a program about Jesus Christ that is accurate. There is a certain burden that is there. What if you're an actor and you're asked to play Jesus? How do you think you're going to measure up? I think you're going to fail. That's just the way it is. But should we, you have to ask yourself the question, should you make any programs for viewing on television or in a movie setting that is about Jesus or like the passion of the Christ? Should you make one at all? Does that violate the second commandment? Thou shalt not make any graven image. Graven, graven image, that means you set up an idol and you bow down to it. Some people use Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 10, to say you can't have a Christmas tree because some people cut down a tree and they take it in their house and they adorn it with gold and silver. And th yeah, that's for worship purposes. If you're worshiping your Christmas tree, we have some talking to do, some counseling's available. That's not what people are doing when they make these shows. And I think these shows are valuable and especially for research purposes. You know, when they make these shows, it's like, can you tell what is accurate and what is not accurate? And the message is getting out. With the particular um, story where Jonathan Rumi plays Jesus there, the chosen, I also saw how they got a bunch of uh, millennials to watch it and that's a program that they have with the chosen you can see it if you get the app or you can I think it's on Amazon as well you can watch it or Netflix it's on one of them but they had these people who were young who had been affected they had a homosexual they had a young girl that had been abused they had had several different things and it was life changing for them to watch the program and it got them into church and sometimes we shoot ourselves. We are in a firing squad that's circular. You know, we're, we're going to shoot somebody, but there's somebody across the way and we end up injuring somebody else. I think it's okay to say these programs are not biblically accurate, but it can help us to see what is biblically accurate. And for those people who don't really know what the scripture is, it gives us an opportunity to explain what the show's about. But even some of the Christians become anti-Christian in the efforts of going out and sharing your faith. And, and that ought not to be. We ought to seek every single avenue we possibly can, whether it's on the internet and you're dialoguing with somebody 
on a blog or you're watching a program maybe with some other people and you can pick out what's right and wrong but nothing in this life is going to be perfect no person is going to be able to play Jesus in a perfect fashion we're just simply trying to communicate that this is Jesus who is Jesus and then you can talk about him more so there are the secular organizations that are against Christianity and then there are the Uh, Christian organizations that actually work against furthering the gospel. So digressing here, the false explanations for conversion of Paul's experience, maybe he had an epileptic seizure, or maybe he had sunstroke, or maybe there was hallucination, or maybe a great thunderstorm broke out on the Golan Heights about noon, which it does in that particular area. Those thunderstorms can break out. But they want to come up with something other than God reached down and touched somebody. They don't like that explanation. They want to give another explanation. And we should examine those to see if the the truthfulness or veracity of what they're saying, if it holds water or if it doesn't. Now going on in verse 10. After he was struck with the light, knocked to the ground, he could hear the voice of the Lord, but nobody else could discern what it was. They only heard a sound. He says, what shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that you must be assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand to Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Now, Ananias, there are three people in the New Testament with that name. It's not the high priest. There was a high priest named Ananias. And it's not the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira, which is in the book of Acts. And there's just different people with common names, and that is one of them. Now, verse 13, he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be a witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking quick, he said, to me leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me so he explains how he got saved and shortly after he went to Jerusalem but then God told him get out of Jerusalem now how would you like to be Ananias Ananias the Lord had to speak to Ananias and say Ananias I have a job for you and he had to recognize it was God speaking to him he goes I want you to get out there on the road going back towards the Golan Heights, northern Jerusalem, or northern Israel, and you're going to run across this guy. And you're going to know this guy. This guy is Saul, who persecutes the Christians, and you're going to talk to him. Lord, oh, hey, he's been killing Christians. You want me to go talk to him? He says, yes, and you must show him and tell him these words. And he gives him the words that he has to say. And, of course, Ananias was well respected by the people there and chosen by God to do this particular task. You have been given tasks as well. Do you know what they are? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing when it comes to your walk with Christ? I know what my job is. I have it set in stone. And you may be a little unsure what your task is. Are you simply supposed to go to Bible study, read, pray, uh, give to the church, and attend any other fellowship that you can? Is that God's will for you? Or is it something much more? You know, if you ask God and you seek after him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he will let himself be found by you and you will know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Now, that's a little scary. What if he says, okay, I want you to go to Antarctica, to the Maduro Fort down there and spend the whole winter witnessing to the people because you'll have a captive audience. Nobody leaves during the winter for six months and you could be there being a witness to them. You could start conducting church services and there are several bases down there. Maybe you have an aptitude for something science oriented or maybe you just want to work in the kitchen or whatever it might be. That's just an example. The Lord has something for you to do and you want to pay attention to what that might be. Paul knew what he was supposed to do and he's carrying it out right here. 
Now, verse 19 says, Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. So imagine a thousand, two thousand people are there in this court. And it said they started throwing up their hands and garments. And also it says they, they picked up dirt and started throwing dirt in the air. Get it all in your head. You know, and what is the purpose of that? They were a passionate people. Now the Jews, they're passionate people. I mean, they, if you ever have an argument with a Jew, you might not win just because they know how to argue and they're passionate about that and some are very calm but most of the people they're passionate and stiff-necked that is a characteristic of the Jewish race that's who they are very very stubborn if they some people have told me I had a pastor tell me once that if they weren't God's chosen people it'd be very easy to dislike the Jews just because of who they are and how they act. Just their personality, that type of thing, as a race. And I think I have a little bit of that because my grandfather was a full Jew, you know, so I, I may have a little stubbornness in it. Probably not much. Patty probably has more. But um, just kidding, Patty. <laughs> but it's this idea we, we can be stubborn. Well, they were, as a people, as a group of people, they were very stubborn so this is what made them mad that Paul would be told by God to go to the Gentiles the Jews had a corner on God they said no you have to keep the law the Jews thought the Gentiles were unclean they wouldn't even walk where they walked they wouldn't touch them they wouldn't eat their food their food was not kosher they considered them dogs so to speak it was a uh, not an expletive but it was a derogatory term that was directed to those who were not part of the covenant people and for Paul to say I'm a Jew of Jews I'm a Roman citizen and this is what happened to me my testimony and God told me to go to the Gentiles and you cannot go to the Gentiles. What do you think you're doing? Now, there's a little bit more to the story about that, but most of the people that were there, they were incensed. And that's it. They were going to try to kill them. And verse 23 says, As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. So what they are going to do with Paul is they're going to take off his cloak, any type of garment he might have, and they're going to put him on a rack or put him up against a stake or a, a crossbar. They're going to tie him to it and they're going to whip him. And it's just not whipping like take out a belt. Now, when you grew up, was a belt a threat? It was in my household. Now, my father used it sparingly, but it was a threat. The belt was a threat. And if you go to Singapore and you break the law in Singapore... Say you took some drugs into Singapore. You get caned. Now, I don't know if you know what a cane is. It's not that thing that you hold and you walk like this. Like, you know, I'm going to need some in a couple of years. It's not like that. A cane is like sugar cane. Like a pole which is out there. And it's several feet long. And it's probably a little bit thinner. And it's dried. And they take it with full force and whack the boy on the back whoever's getting caned so to speak and it smacks and you only get two or three but that's enough to remind you don't break the law in Singapore well it was worse with the Romans could you bring up that cat of nine tails this is a cat of nine tails now if you look closely at the end of those leather strips 
are metal sharpened hooks like fish hooks. And so they would take this and they would get a confession out of anybody that they wanted to because they'd take this to the torso of the individual. The hooks would go into the body and rip out the flesh. And it would not take long for people to confess. Maybe after one strike. Now Jesus was beat with one of these repeatedly. And his flesh was opened up. And the Romans, they were just brutal. So they're laying him out. They're getting ready just to beat a confession out of him. And as they're tying him up, he goes, is this how you treat a Roman citizen? They go, "Uh uh-oh. They weren't allowed to tie up a Roman citizen and to beat them without a trial. And they had broken the law. And now they were worried. And it goes on. Verse 25, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. So there are a couple of ways that you could become a citizen. If you served 20 to 25 years in the Roman army, they would allow, and if you served with an honorable discharge, you could get citizenship that way. If you had a lot of money, you could buy your citizenship. The third way was to be born in a city that was called a free city, And Paul was in Tarsus of Cilicia. And he was born a Roman citizen. Verse 29. For those who were about to question him, he withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. And of course, this was prophesied by Agabus. Verse 30. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So at this particular point, I'm going to continue here. I just want you to remember he had an ancestry. He had a pedigree. He was a full-blooded Jew. And he was a Roman citizen. He had intelligence or wisdom or a PhD. He had acumen. He was enthusiastic. He was uh, ardent. He was passionate for what he believed. And he was affected by the transformation that he had on the road to Damascus. Now, all of us, we have an ancestry. We have a reasonable degree of intelligence. Uh, We can be enthusiastic. It just depends on how God's working on your heart and how you want your heart to be worked on by God. And he will affect you if you want him to. You just have to simply ask him, Lord, affect me. Maybe I don't need the light coming down, but stir up within me the passion that is there. And if you trust in the Holy Spirit to work through you, he will. And as far as you giving your testimony... You can start with who you are and who you're talking to, the person you're in front of and where you've come from. Uh, When we travel, oftentimes I'll get in a conversation with somebody and I'll say, so where are you from? And they'll say where they're from. You know, if we go somewhere on the East Coast, they're going to be somewhere from the East Coast or down to South America if it's in America and they're from somewhere usually Midwest or East Coast and San Diego if we go, you know, uh, West then people say, yeah, I'm California. You know, the Californians tend to go uh, west and the the eastern seaboard tends to go south or maybe over to Europe. And you have that conversation. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And, And what was your life like? Then you can explain that you know about eternal life and you've done some study. Or you can say, you know, I go to church and do you mind if I take a minute and speak to you about that? Like I said, most of the time it's going to be rejected not all the time and that's the person you want to focus on and then tell them how you got saved what were the circumstances eventually get there this isn't a hard fast one two three you don't go through these steps one two three at a time because you have to build a relationship with the person you're communicating with and it's easy to do we just don't like to do it very much now give you a little side story and illustration of this 
I didn't witness at this time, but I, I practiced talking to strangers. Now, when you grow up, what do your parents tell you? Don't talk to strangers. I practice talking to strangers. When we were in Hawaii, my daughter had to take a refresher course, and in this pool there is this window, and you could see them in this 12-foot pool, and we're standing there watching, and this guy walks over because his two sons are taking a refresher course as well. And he's just standing there. And so I go, well, there's my opportunity. I said, hi, how you doing? Oh, hi, how are you doing? And we had this conversation going on and how his sons had been through this refresher course six times and never gotten certified. And we were just going back and forth. And I was just practicing talking to strangers. And it's okay. Most people are friendly and they want to talk. They want to have a conversation. You should try it. If you're going somewhere today and you're standing in line for something, turn around and say, hey, how you doing? Look at this line, huh? What do you think of this line? Wow, and prices of the groceries have really gone up, haven't they? Well, you know, that's part of the end times. It says that the prices, you know, it's going to cost like a barrel full of, or a wheelbarrow full of cash just to buy a day's wage, or a day's wages to buy some bread, a loaf of bread. And you can talk like that. They go, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, this inflation, I don't think it's going to stop too soon. And, and talk to them about where we're headed. You can do it as easy as that, but you have to practice talking to strangers. Now, going on here, when Paul went before the Sanhedrin, some people say maybe he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and I have been told in the past that you had to be married to be part of the Sanhedrin. Of course, Paul was single at this time. We don't know what happened to his wife, if he was married. All that's kind of um, shady or nebulous. We don't have concrete detail on that. But the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. And I'm going to give you a little context of the world that Paul lived in. In our society today, how do we identify ourselves? There are conservatives, there are liberals, there are leftists, there are Democrats, there are Republicans, there are Christians, there are atheists. We have these categories that we place ourselves in and we put other people in. Well, the same was true back in Paul's day. You had Herodians, Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, Hellenists, Scribes, Elders, Samaritans, Sakari, and Essenes. Now, Masada is where the Essenes were. They were a sect of Judaism, and they were mystics. They really didn't hold to um, the contemporary view of Orthodox Judaism. They were kind of out there, and we're going to visit Masada, and so you'll see where they lived. Then there were the Sakari. The Sakari, have you heard the term Sakario? The Sakario means, and it comes from the Latin or Spanish, means hitman. That's what it means. And the Sakari used to carry daggers. Now, in the uh, program The Chosen, the guy who was there, Simon the Zealot, he was a Sakari. He carried a blade inside his cloak. Have you ever heard the phrase cloak and dagger? They would go into a crowd, a big crowd, like if the Romans were in a crowd or they were conducting a, a raid or whatever, there was a crowd of people. They would have that dagger in their cloak and they'd find a Roman and they'd stab the Roman and disappear and go away. That's what they were. They were the assassins is who they were. And those people are around at the time of Paul and at the time of Jesus as well. The Hellenists, they, they liked the Hellenistic culture, the Greek culture which was there. The Herodians, they were a political party. They hung out with Herod who tried to make friends with the Romans and stay in power. The Sadducees, they were the high priests. They were the wealthy, rich ones. They would have lived in Rancho Santa Fe and La Jolla and up on the hill and in, in um, Point Loma and different places. They 
they had a lot of wealth. The Pharisees were the common businessmen and traders, the merchants of the day. But they were, in fact, Jews, but they were middle class, so to speak. The zealots, they were zealous for the Lord God, and, and they would do just about anything for the sake of Judaism. The scribes, they were like the attorneys, the lawyers. They would write things down, and they'd keep track of everything that was taking place, like in the Sanhedrin. And of course, the elders were the elders of the tribes that were there, the Samaritans. They were the ones that moved north, and they had their own temple. They were... Uh, quote-unquote, not pure in their Jewish line. They intermixed with the Assyrians, and because of that, the Jews in Jerusalem would reject them. And, and so those were the sects that Jesus and also Paul would have been dealing with that at the time. Now, a little more information on the Sadducees. They were the elite ruling class. They did not believe in the resurrection nor in angels. They were politically involved. They worked with the Roman Empire. They only believed in the first five books that Moses wrote, not the rest of the law and the prophets. And God was inactive, they believed, in history. He wasn't working amongst us. He wasn't, and the technical term is Eminent. Now, there are three eminent words, and you'll have to look those up on your own. But he was not working amongst us. He was transcendent. He was well beyond us. It's kind of like the deists back in the founding of the, the country. The deists believed that God was way out there. He's not here. Very similar to what the Sadducees believed. There are no angels, no demons, no resurrection of the dead, no afterlife. Uh, and they rejected the oral law that had been passed down through the generations, things that they memorized, and they leaned heavily into the Greek ideas and culture. That's who the Sadducees were. Very, very powerful. They had the majority in the Sanhedrin. But then you had the Pharisees, who by population were much greater, about 6,000 people in the days of Paul, that were considered Pharisees inside Jerusalem and beyond. The Pharisees were called separate ones or separated ones. Pirushim is the word for that. They were legalists. They were into legalism. They tended to avoid politics of the day. They were really into the oral law as well as the written law. Their interpretation, explanation, and applications became equal to the law of God. So if they interpreted something and a rabbi had said, this is what it means, and he was a Pharisee, then that particular rabbi, what he said, became just like God's word, just like the Ten Commandments. Now, Jesus kept the law of Moses, but he did not keep the extra law of the Pharisees, and that's what made them very mad, doing a healing on Sunday, on a Sabbath, excuse me, a Saturday. They did not like that because it was their tradition that you do not do any work at all. You could walk two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath, but you could not work anymore or walk anymore because that would be considered work. You could have a fire in your house, and if it was burning, that's just fine. But if it went out, you couldn't start it again because that was considered work. And so you had the Mishnah and the Gemara, and that was all commentary on the Bible, on the Old Testament. And they said, you had to follow this stuff in the Bible, as well as the Gemara and the Mishnah. You had to follow that stuff. And those two other documents I'm referring to, that was the oral law put into those documents. And so they would follow that. Now, they also believed in the bodily resurrection of the dead, uh, that God is working in and through creation. He is eminent. And all the Old Testament was the word of God, not just the five books. They focused on personal piety, tithing, and like when they tithe, they would tithe off of spices that they would harvest. I mean, they were very, very meticulous. And of course, Jesus condemned them. At one particular point, he says, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. They were so meticulous in what they would drink, they would strain it through a filter, the water or whatever they drank, to make sure there were no bugs in it. Because a bug is unclean. And if they drank it, they would become unclean on the inside. But in their hypocrisy, they would swallow a whole camel, which was the largest of unclean animals. And Jesus was calling them hypocrites. And they, again, were the middle class businessmen, traders, and merchants. And they were the leaders of the synagogue movement. The high priests 
and the Sadducees, they were over the temple. But the synagogue set up that all the different cities that the synagogues had, it was the Pharisees who were in charge of that. And they were the scrutinizers. They would look at people to make sure that they were doing what they were supposed to. Now, I'm at the end of the hour here, and that's just to give you a background on who the Sadducees and the Pharisees were. But even in Christendom, there are people that have a tendency to act like the Pharisees. I was talking to a a young girl this last week about a particular sect of Christianity where women have to wear long dresses, cannot cut their hair, have to reduce the amount of makeup that they have and and totally submissive in everything a a husband would ask them to do and just all kinds of things that you had to follow through with. And if you don't, they examine you and condemn you for it and say you're not even saved. Or the, some of the reformed churches where they're checking on you and they're calling you and what are you doing and why haven't you been at church? And they, they have this control over people. That's what the Pharisees did. They would reprimand people if they got out of their control and keep them in line and have severe punishments. And of course, we know that that led to the death of Jesus because Jesus said, forget your oral law. You only have to follow the commandments. Now, the takeaway from all this is, is Paul's giving his testimony here. And we will see more of what happens to him. But he had a chance to speak. We want to make sure we maintain the freedom that we have in Christ to speak at any given time, even though there is a move to make us be quiet, whether it's online or in public. You have the ability to speak. God has given you the purpose uh, ahead of us to go and make disciples. That means we have to open up our mouths and we have to communicate with people. We also know that there's going to be problems of persecution, persecution and rejection, and we can accept that. But we also want to make sure we don't fall into the error of those who would oppose Christians, that circular firing squad. And if you have a problem with what somebody's doing, if it is not unscriptural, if it doesn't go against the doctrine of the church, and you can't handle it or you say no I don't I don't like that well just pray about it maybe there's something they're doing that God has given them the freedom to do but other than that let people go out and speak let people live how they would live let them be a testimony and may we follow in the same footsteps let's pray father I I thank you for Paul I I thank you that we we have your word that tells us all about these different sects and what happened with Paul and his testimony And Father, may you encourage us in this, that we'd be willing to speak, willing to go out, and that we'd get rid of our own fears and anxieties in doing this. We know that you have called us to be those witnesses, so empower us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Please stand.